consumers have options now. They're used to options for craft beer, craft chocolate, craft coffee. Are we headed in the direction of having craft plants? <laughs> well, I think that overall the trend is, you know, more diversity in our diets. And certainly the chefs that we work with are really at the vanguard. They're at the forefront of this kind of experimentation and introducing new things to people. And I, you know, sometimes it, it becomes apparent, um, you know, just by walking around a food court in Manhattan now, you know, if you look back maybe 15 years ago, you might have had a Mexican place and maybe a Thai place or something, you know. But now you'll have Mexican and Thai and Vietnamese and you'll have Japanese and you'll have a certain region of China maybe and you'll have like a Peruvian place. And, and so people are becoming more accustomed with just eating more globally and discovering more ingredients and, you know, being interested in something fresh on the plate. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CBG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast today, everybody. Today, my guest is Rob Lang, who is the founder and CEO of Farm One, a really interesting company. Uh, you're going you're gonna to be interested to hear what Rob and his company do. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So to start out, Rob, why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal journey, why why you got started in this business and how you got involved with Farm One. Sure, yeah. So my background originally is not in the food world at all. I, I actually started my career as a designer. I was living in the UK, working for ad agencies and building websites and all that kind of thing. And I ended up moving to Japan and starting a startup there, which was completely different. It was a translation technology company. Uh, but I learned a lot by building that startup, and I also, um, you know, realized that what I ate while I was working had a big effect on my body. And so I really made some quite big lifestyle changes, you know, about sort of seven or eight years ago while I was running that company. Um, you know, I switched to more of a plant-based diet. You know, I, I really noticed some big improvements in my health when I would eat well. Uh, but also living in Japan, I was exposed to, you know, a really interesting food culture. And if you know, you or any of your listeners have managed to go to Japan or Tokyo, you can experience, you know, amazing fruit and vegetables, like a really great attention to detail and amazing produce. And so when I decided to leave Japan and start something new, I knew that I was interested in food, but I, I was pretty sure I wasn't, you know, didn't have the skill to be a chef. Uh, so I took a bunch of culinary classes and I just learned a lot more about farmers markets and produce and managed to spend time hanging out in L.A. and going to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market there. Um, and I was really intrigued by interesting, you know, unusual produce. Uh, I was interested in the fact that, you know, the seasonality is such a big, big thing when you're growing outdoors. And as a techie person, I was kind of interested in, you know, maybe I could use some of the new technology I had been seeing to, uh, you know, be able to grow interesting things maybe year-round. And that's how I started to look into hydroponics, started to learn about vertical farming and indoor farming. And so I was lucky enough to spend time in Santa Monica at the farmer's market there. And I became really intrigued by unusual produce, but also the fact that the seasons would have a big impact on what was available. And so, you know, I, I was interested in the idea of using technology, using hydroponics, maybe using LED lights. And this idea that I'd heard of of vertical farming, that is like farming indoors under these lights and in a controlled environment. And of course, I didn't really have an experience of this, you know, so it was mostly just thinking as a technically minded guy, you know, someone who's interested in engineering and problem solving. I just decided to do a lot of research and try to figure out, okay, how does this all work? You know, where might be a good place to do this? Um, and also, of course, you know, in starting a new company, I was wanted to make sure that there was financial viability. So I was trying to figure out, okay, what, what kind of crops could I grow? You know, which ones might make sense? Obviously, I'd also seen people online, a lot of people growing cannabis now in the U.S., of course, and having some financial success with that. Um, but that wasn't really interesting to me. And what I kept coming back to was the idea of these, you know, really interesting flavors, unusual uh, herbs, unusual edible flowers, and, and the idea that I might supply chefs uh, in a city growing that kind of product. And so... Really, I, I came you know, on the idea that I would move to New York, that I would start up something here very, very small as a prototype, and really just try to discover if I had a viable business idea. So that's what I did. 
uh, at the beginning of 2016, uh, and by you know April 2016, I had found a site for the for the prototype farm, and that's really how we got started. So so yeah, like you know, five years ago, I had no idea about any of this stuff, uh, and now today I have some idea, but you know, we're still learning all the time. It's interesting. You were not in the food industry, but you had that tech background and that tech perspective. How do you think? How do you think that helped you with uh, launching? your uh your your company there and and why don't you tell our listeners really what drives your company what's your mission yeah sure so that tech background to start off you know i've been someone who's always tried to problem solve and tried to build and and you know initially that was websites and programming and building software um i've always been someone who's interested in understanding things from first principles and so the way that that informs our company is really we don't take anything for granted. You know, we're growing indoors in a small space in a city. Um, we're using technology that hasn't been around for very long. So there isn't really a textbook that we can refer to. There aren't people who've been in this industry for 50 years who can tell us what to do. It's mostly about figuring things out from scratch. And sometimes, you know, that's really hard and that causes us to go down dead ends. But other times it means we can come up with better solutions. And so, you know, for instance, we deliver directly to chefs who are our customers. And because we're so close by, we can use reusable packaging. So there's no packaging waste there and obviously a lot of less insulation and shipping waste and that kind of thing. So there's things that we can do because we're starting anew that are, you know, a bit more innovative and a bit more sustainable, which is really great. And I think, you know, how that informs our mission is that we're really here to grow the kind of thing that chefs really, really want to get, they're excited about, uh, but they have they have trouble getting. And we're here to do that year-round, clean, pesticide-free, and we're, we're doing that in the heart of the city. So we sometimes say uh, local, rare, and fresh all year. You know, that kind of informs how we think. Um, and, and that's what been our mission from the beginning. But what's also really started to emerge over the past couple of years is that this is not just a production facility. This is also somewhere where people love to visit. And, and so we do tours and classes and we do events. Um, and this is a way for people to experience the farm and taste all these different flavors. And so there's a delight element to our business as well, where we really, really want to show people how amazing this produce is and and also, you know, give them contact with a farm because people live in, in cities. Most of the time, they don't get to visit farms. Farms are too far away. Farms are mysterious. You know, when you buy kale from Whole Foods, often it's from hundreds or thousands of miles away. And we don't really know what condition it was grown in or anything like that. So having vertical farms in the city that people can visit is, is really, really powerful. And, you know, it gives people a lot more uh, ideas and a lot more knowledge about where their food comes from. Mm-hmm. I like that local, rare, and fresh all year. What sort of what sort of feedback have you got from your customers and prospective customers? Yeah, so from the beginning, you know, we, we really wanted to grow the best produce. And, and going back to my experience in Japan, um, you know, people are very, very careful and detail-oriented and, and things are presented beautifully. And I, I wanted an element of that in what we're growing. Um, and so I, I knew that I wanted to go after the best chefs in the city. And so we, when we had started very early on to grow a small range of produce, we uh, took it to some of the best restaurants to, to try out. And so actually one of our first customers was Danielle Belud, uh, with restaurant Danielle, you know, that has two Michelin stars. He has a bunch of restaurants here. And he was excited by the flavor and, and the appearance of, of, as well of this crop. And, you know, one of the great things about working with chefs is they don't have time to, you know, pretend that they like something. It's not it's not like you'll give a chef something and he'll pretend that it tastes good if it doesn't. And you don't have to go through a really laborious sales process. They either say, I like it or, or I don't. And initially and, and always, we've had amazing feedback from chefs. And this is something where, you know, I wasn't sure initially if we grow things in a hydroponic system under lights, are they going to taste as good as things grown in soil? But I think that, you know, consistently we've had great feedback. And, and part of that is because of the interesting varieties that we grow and the care that we, we do that with. But also it's because everything is so fresh. You know, if you pick it straight straight off the plant, it's as good as it's ever going to be. And if you deliver it within a couple of hours of harvest and it ends up on a plate that evening, you know, you can't get fresher than that. So we've had great, great feedback. And, 
And that's really kept us going through all the ups and downs that you can imagine. So tell, tell our listeners about your location or locations rather. You're not only just in New York City, you're actually in the borough of Manhattan, correct? Yeah, that's right. So it's sort of the last place you would expect to find a farm. We're in an area called Tribeca, which is an area downtown that's kind of known for fancy apartments and some expensive restaurants. And it's one of the most expensive zip codes in the city. And we're lucky enough to be there because a two Michelin star restaurant called Atera uh, was one of our first prototype customers out of our prototype farm. And they said, hey, we've got a little bit of space in our building. Uh, which is currently unused, why don't you come in and build a bigger farm there? So that's what we did in the middle of 2017. And we have a small farm. It's only 1,200 square foot at that location. Uh, but it's enough for us to serve about 40 restaurant customers in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And because of that central location, uh, you know, we are able to deliver to customers within normally 20, 30 minutes. We do all the deliveries ourselves over the subway, uh, sometimes by bike. And we can also welcome guests into that uh, building as well. And so, you know, it's a very central location. Uh, some people might think we're crazy for being there. It's obviously, you know, not a cheap part of town, but we have a good deal with the restaurant. We give them some free product, you know, in, in exchange for some rent. And um, it works out for us really well. And I think that, you know, it's really helped us have this idea that as we build future farms, you know, being in the center of some cities uh, will make sense for us. It's amazing. You're in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in the United States, and it's making economic sense for you and for the business? Yeah, it does. And, you know, that was one of, one of the things, obviously, that was really important to me at the beginning. I didn't have millions of dollars to invest. You know, I wanted to make sure that I could build a business that was sustainable. Um, and, you know, we, we've had to experiment along the way to make sure we have a business model that makes sense. But, you know, for us, we've got this combination of product sales to chefs, but also these tours and classes and event components. And together, that brings us, you know, an operation there that's profitable. And, you know, we're very confident that in certain cities, we can replicate this model. It's not going to work everywhere. Obviously, we're at the high end of the market. We're serving, you know, a very niche, um, expensive set of restaurants. Uh, but in cities like New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Miami, et cetera, um, we think there's a really good opportunity for us to expand. So that raises the next question. Is what can you share with our listeners in terms of your expansion plans? Yeah. So, you know, from the beginning, we've, we've really been trying to establish the model, like how does a farm like this work? You know? and, and as I said, there's no textbook for that. So uh, it's about figuring out, you know, what do you grow? How do you grow it? You know, what kind of customers do you work with? How do you handle orders? How do you plan out the production system? How do you plant products? And, and what kind of team do you need? You know, figuring out shifts and all this kind of stuff. So we've had to figure that out from scratch. And, and you know, we've also at the same time, because of the tech background that I have, and, and that's how, what I sort of bring to the business, we've, we've built software to help us run the farm as well. So there's, there's lots of little sort of, you know, seemingly boring things that no one has built yet for vertical farms like how do people do labeling for the crops and how do they manage the consumable items that they use on the farm so we've had to build some of those things ourselves uh, but that's also meant oh this is great because now we have you know a defined operating system and so uh, a little bit like you know when mcdonald's started to um, define how they would, you know, do the production in the kitchen and how you would lay out a kitchen and who, who would do what. We've been figuring out some of that on the farming side as well. So now, you know, we're quite confident that we can replicate this system uh, in other cities and, and, and we can replicate it not by hiring super expensive, super experienced hydroponics people, of which there are very few, uh, we can hire people who, you know, are, are good and ready to go, but they can be trained up on our system. And so our plan now is, and we've, we've got a couple of projects underway. I, they're not publicly announced yet, but there's one city that we're going to be expanding to um, in Q1 2020. Uh, and that's another major city where we'll have another farm, and that's really exciting. Uh, we're also looking for a bigger space now in New York City. We think, you know, the market there is ready to support a farm that's quite a bit bigger. And then, you know, we're also excited about a project in Europe that we're involved in. And, and hopefully, you know, if everything goes well, we'll be building many more farms across the U.S. and in other countries over the next five years. So you, you, you said the word operating system. That's interesting. And you mentioned the McDonald's analogy. I, I take it 
where you're headed with that is the consumer experience in a McDonald's. doesn't matter if you're in Chicago or Tokyo or Moscow. You're going to get the same Big Mac type of experience and have the same cleanliness and food safety and all that kind of stuff. Tell us, tell us more about your operating system. Yeah, so that's right. So I, I think, as, as you've said, it's, it's all about consistency. And how do you achieve that consistency when you've got different people working and different places and locations and all that kind of stuff? And so the way that Farm One works is, you know, and to, to speak a little bit about the hardware here, if you imagine a room of about a thousand square foot and you imagine that room is full of these racks, which actually we use racks that are mobile. So um, that means that we only have to have one aisle open at once. It gives us the maximum amount of growing space. And then each rack might have four to, to six different levels on it. And those levels are lit by LED lights and they have a hydroponic growing tray on each shelf. Uh, and those trays are all connected together with various nutrients flowing through them and timers and things bubbling the, uh, the liquid, the, the water with air. Um, and of course there's, you know, there's tasks that you need to do every day on the farm, you know, such as checking the dosing or maybe cleaning and harvesting and, and planting new seeds. And then there's other things that are more long-term processes. And so everyone has to be trained on those things. And we have a, a sort of standard hierarchy of, of people in the farm. And we've had to figure out how all that works, you know, what kind of level of person needs to do this and how, you know, how often do you need to clean this and how what can you use if you want to clean it that you want to maintain um, a sort of pesticide-free, mostly chemical-free environment, you know. So all that stuff has to be sort of figured out. And so what we've created really is, um, you know, overall a task system. So that sort of defines what has to be done on a given day. And then the way that we grow um, is it's not like we just plant, um, you know, by season. We don't really have seasons on the farm. So instead, everything is really dictated by growing recipes. And that's the what we call the way that we plan out. Okay, for if we're growing, for instance, uh, lemon jam marigold, which is a tiny little marigold flower that has a fragrant, great, fruity, kind of oily um, smell. If we want to grow that, okay, we know it takes, it takes X weeks um, from seed to harvest. And so if a chef wants that, uh, we need to be ready in advance of their orders. And then if they want to order it once a week and they need 50 count of these flowers, Okay, how does that impact our production system? And so we decided to, to come up with really a grow-to-order system where uh, we work with chefs on long-term uh, contracts and they get recurring orders and we're planting product every week for them uh, or every whatever it is, the period, uh, based on what they want. And so those growing recipes really allow us to plan out um, like a planting list for the day. So every single day on the farm, we're planting new products and today is a Thursday, so... We're planting, you know, maybe 60 different items and those are uh, different products, different sizes, all that kind of stuff. And it's it's basically impossible to do that just with a spreadsheet or a piece of paper. You have to systematize it. And so our software kind of does all those calculations for us, which means that our farm manager can kind of look at what's upcoming today, you know, create a task list for the team, get everything done, get the harvest done, get the products out, out the door reliably on time. And and really, you know, no system is perfect, but we're confident that uh, this will allow us to scale to other locations and, and, and ensure consistency every time. Because, you know, that's the whole point of controlled environment agriculture is consistency. And it's one of the things that makes these farms um, very uh, efficient and productive because we don't have seasons. We can, you know, ideally, if we're running everything well, the conditions should be the same in January as they are in August. And, and, and it takes a lot of work to do that, but, um, but, you know, we've made a lot of progress over the past three years. I encourage our listeners to check out your webpage, which is farm.one. One of the things that struck me on your webpage is you've got a whole area there on technology. It seems like you're one part food company, one part technology company. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the, um, the only way to do it, if you're doing, you know, a controlled environment, agriculture, growing so many different crops, I mean, I couldn't even imagine trying to do this without a software component. It's certainly the way that my mind works, but it's also, I think, the only way that we can scale. And what we're doing with that tech is, is obviously, we're, we're going to be rolling out new farms, and those are using our own software. But we're also starting to release uh, some software to the public as well, which is a 
um, some subsections of, of that functionality that we use every day. So we've just uh, launched into beta a product called Silo, which is specifically for consumables management. So the idea for small businesses to manage all the packaging that they order and all the office supplies and all these little bits and pieces. And we, we built that because we had trouble managing our own stock and our own inventory. Um, and we ran into issues where we would run out of nutrients, which meant that we couldn't feed our plants. And that was a disaster. So we've decided to build some, some simple tech to solve that. And now we're, we're starting to offer it to other companies as well. So the fact that you've got this technology stack or an operating system, as you call it, you use the McDonald's analogy, it really begs the question, as you scale and expand, are those all going to be farm one owned locations or are you going to franchise? Yeah, I think we've got a lot of options. Uh, At the beginning, you know, what's most important to me and the team is that we make sure the quality stays really high and that each location is super successful. And so I don't think we're ready yet to say, let's sell like 100 franchises or something like that. We're not, we're still a bit too small and uh, we've got to do some learning first, I think. So the, um, the idea is, you know, firstly, the first few farms are going to be quite tightly controlled by us, um, you know, probably working with outside investors at each location, but, but heavily involved by us. And then I think if that goes really well, we could look at the option of franchising or something like that, you know. So it's one of the things that I, as a as a business owner, you know, it's not something I've gone through before. So what I'm trying to do right now is, is ask for advice from or work with our lawyer you know, work with other people who've done this kind of thing and, and, you know, understand what they've been through because there's always, you know, there's trade-offs and uh, of various different models. But I'm definitely in a, out of my comfort zone in some of that stuff. So it's interesting and we're, we're trying to figure things out as we go along. I might be able to hook you up with some of our other guests on the podcast who have quite a bit of entrepreneurial and financing background. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you've talked about the benefits to the customers you sell directly to, the chefs at high-end restaurants, your tagline, local, rare, and fresh all year. That certainly would appeal to them, especially the rare and the fresh part. But what are the other benefits to what you're doing? I mean, broad, more broadly, what are the benefits to the planet, the economy, and so on? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, once we, when we think about agriculture and agriculture in the U.S. especially, there's obviously lots of different things going on, lots of things that people are unhappy about, about the system and and questions for the future in terms of, you know, how are we going to feed people, not just the quantity of food that they need, but really the quality and the type of food that they need. Uh, And I think that's, you know, something that's a pressing issue wherever you are, and it manifests itself in different ways. So, you know, in New York City, which is one of the richest cities in the world, we also have food deserts. We have parts of the city where, where people can't access good fresh food or they can't do that on an affordable basis. And so there's lots of things to be solved. And then you add to this the question about, okay, from a sustainability perspective, how are things being grown? Is it, you know, are we using, are we producing greenhouse gas? Are we, you know, transporting product and creating emissions that way? And I think that, you know, one of the uh, failings, I would say, of the vertical farm movement is that we as a movement have sort of tried to say that we're the answer to everything. And I think that's, I don't think that's true. I think that vertical farming can be an answer. It can be a solution for certain types of crops in certain types of situations. And so at Farm One, we try to be pretty honest about that. We try to sort of, you know, get quite specific about why we have a farm like this and, and what we grow. And so... You know, if you look at um, the kind of crops that we grow, we're growing uh, herbs, we're growing edible flowers, we're growing microgreens. But as a broad category, they're mostly sort of leafy green kind of things. And and the reason why people in vertical farms are normally growing that kind of crop is, you know, partly because they grow pretty quickly. You know, most of our crops are spending between two weeks to, to five weeks in the system before they reach maturity. Uh, and that means, you know, from a purely commercial perspective, you can kind of make the economics work okay because you've got an expensive system, you've got expensive inputs, and you've got expensive labor. So you kind of want a crop that's going to not spend too long in that system. You know, if you compare that to, uh, for instance, maybe a blueberry bush or something like that, which you might need a couple of years to get that to be productive or, or even, you know, grapevines or something like that where you're spending multiple years, 
that kind of stuff doesn't make so much sense in a in a vertical farm. So, so most of the time you'll see you know people growing these leafy greens, um, and most of the time you'll see people doing vertical farms trying to be as close to the customer as possible because we're trying to eliminate that transport cost and also make sure the product is as fresh as possible when it arrives. And the last thing about vertical farming is, you know, we're trying to keep it to be a very clean system. Uh, it's not always completely sterile, but it's trying to eliminate a lot of the pathogens, a lot of the things that are going to put plants at risk. And so if you can do that successfully, then, you know, you can deliver to a restaurant or a supermarket something that's going to last on, you know, in their storage or on their shelves for a long time, something that's, you know, hasn't caused too many emissions in transport and something that's um, pretty much pesticide-free or, you know, chemical-free um, and, and clean and, and you know that uh, it's, it's not going to have pathogens on it that could have come from other sources. And so that's why vertical farming tends to be really attractive. Uh, you know, certainly bigger companies than ours, like Plenty is one of them in California, Aero Farms is one in New Jersey, and, and Bowery is one in New Jersey and New York. Those are, those are those guys are building really big vertical farms to serve the grocery store market. Um, and grocery stores kind of love those guys because they're producing a very reliable product. Um, you know, a lot of the scares around salmonella and E. coli have informed, you know, people being pretty careful about food safety in that, that is leafy green market. And then, you know, it's sort of the next question is about the sustainability of these kind of operations overall. And, and as I mentioned, you know, we're really reducing that transport emission, but uh, transport emissions are not the only you know, emissions that you'll get associated associated with agriculture. Uh, there's packaging, of course, as well, and people tend to underestimate the amount of emissions in, in packaging and insulation and cooling and that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, you know, these vertical farms, we do use LED lights and we do use HVAC air conditioning systems. You know, we are um, using a lot of electricity on these farms. And so there's always a trade-off between, okay, lower transport emissions, but maybe more production emissions. And and we, you know, at Farm One, we try to be pretty, um, you know, cognizant of that. We don't want to tell people that this is a zero emission solution. We do buy our electricity from renewable sources, but we do actually use a fair bit of electricity. And so we think it's, it's, an, it's a net benefit because we basically have no transport emissions, no packaging emissions almost. Um, you know, we're not using pesticides. We're not having runoff into the environment. Uh, and product is fresher, and so people tend to use more of it. But we do use a fair amount of electricity. So there's always ups and downs. But I think for the right kind of product in the right kind of location, like New York, um, you know, vertical farming makes makes lots of sense. And you're going to see more and more of these farms in the future. So we're not going to see vertical farms in major cities growing tons of soybeans or tons of corn, but makes a lot of sense for specific things like leafy greens and herbs. Um, yeah. And do you do you see it getting to the point where, you know, we had this huge problem with romaine lettuce about a year ago. You see it getting yeah. to the point where we could just say, well, never mind, that's no longer a problem. We're now in a controlled environment. We're not going to get contamination from the, uh, the, the animal lot that happened to be next door to that farm that uh, polluted that crop. Do you see it getting to that point someday? I think we're going in that direction. And, you know, if you're a grocery store and you want to eliminate that kind of risk, you're going to do a lot of things to try to do that. And and certainly hydroponics, aeroponics, these indoor farming systems, you know, we eliminate manure and kind of animal byproducts um, as, as part of the component there. And also, you know, just the general control and cleanliness of the product through the farming system is, is much, much higher. We're able to control, you know, for many of these elements. That's not to say that people running these facilities don't need to be very careful. And, you know, there's other risks of other kinds of pathogens developing. Uh, but generally, you know, the people who are building vertical farms now, one of the big reasons of doing that is that, you know, they can control food safety aspects much more. And so um, it's not to say that we'll never have a scare again, but I think that the drive in the industry is for more control, more cleanliness. And so you're going to see hopefully a, a lot fewer of those kinds of scares and a lot more control. Mm. So you've talked about a lot of the upsides. What are the downsides for this method of farming, vertical farming in urban settings? Yeah, so, you know, I mentioned briefly some of the sustainability questions there. And I think, you know, to reiterate that, we, these farms do use a lot of power. Um, the 
we don't use a lot of water, funnily enough, even though we have hydroponic farms. The water use is very, very low. Uh, but, you know, looking at a life cycle analysis of a vertical farm, you're, you're building a lot of infrastructure. There's LED lights, there's components, there's rare metals used in all these bits of tech. And so, um, you know, it's, it's something where people who are more of the land, more looking at regenerative agriculture, are going to look at these farms and go like, oh, it doesn't feel like a farm, you know, it feels more like a factory and, um, I think that, you know, it's worth asking that question every so often about, you know, what should we be building? And then I think that, you know, the other question about vertical farms, and, and this comes to the financial viability of them, uh, you know, those larger farms, they're not they're not profitable yet. And so a lot of them are relying on, you know, huge amounts of VC funding to grow. Um, some of them will succeed, some of them won't. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a real question as to who's going to be able to run profitably. One of the difficulties with these things is if you're going to locate your farm in a city center, um, you're going to do that in a high labor cost area. You know, minimum wage in New York is $15. Effectively, we pay people a little bit more than that, but that's a very high sort of minimum wage for uh, a person working on a farm. And if you compare that to many other parts of the U.S., you know, it's, it's just economically a completely different picture. Um, so I think that, you know, understanding how are these farms going to be financially viable if they're located in expensive areas, that's a question, you know. Um, and I think that, you know, that's, that sort of brings me to the next topic, which is probably to become viable, these farms are going to have to automate. There isn't a lot of automation that's really available for these vertical farms at the moment. And so a lot of the companies that are raising lots of money right now are trying to develop tech uh, for harvesting and planting and all this kind of stuff in an indoor farm. And so um, there's a lot of sort of unknown still about the industry and a lot of questions about who's going to be profitable and who's actually going to make, uh, who's going to take that market uh, for leafy greens and salad mixes. Um, but, you know, luckily at Farm One, we're more in a niche and we have a product which is a much higher price. So it allows us to kind of get away with a little bit of um, inefficiency and, and labor and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you grow these different plants, do you have particular issues or particular focus on sourcing the seeds so that your stock is very tightly controlled from that perspective too? Yeah, absolutely. So at the beginning, the first, you know, set of crops that we grew was, was 10 different varieties. Um, and, you know, at that time, uh, we were growing Nepotella, for instance, which is a herb from Tuscany in Italy, and it produces a pink minty flower, which is very attractive. And we were growing uh, red shiso and apple mint, for instance, and some things like that. So we tend to grow stuff that, you know, you can't find it in the grocery store, and that's why we're growing it. Uh, but we're growing seeds from all different kinds of suppliers. We work with about 75, 70, 78 different seed suppliers, I think, right now. And they may range from Johnny's Seeds, which is one of the biggest suppliers in the U.S., if not the biggest, uh, down to like an individual person on eBay who has a mint plant that they've, you know, cloned from something else. So mm. and they might send us that plant in a plastic bag. And you know, it's a very, very different. Um, I, and that now has become a library of about 600 different varieties that we've grown. Uh, and they've all been based on chef, you know, recommendations or chef requests where, you know, we're lucky enough in New York City to have so many different cultures and people coming from Mexico and Norway and, you know, South South America and all these different places. And so we get requests about all these different products. And our job is really to, to source that and try to find a reliable way of growing everything. So, so yeah, that library and that R&D process for us is really important. And, uh, you know, we'd love to eventually have a dedicated facility for all of that because there's loads and loads of plants that we still want to test and loads of plants we want to grow better. Um, and, you know, it's all about learning about that. And, and as I said before, there's no... There's no textbook for this. A lot of these things have never been grown in a hydroponic system before. Um, most of them not under LED lights before. So we're really the first to try to figure this out. Um, and we make a lot of mistakes. But, but yeah, we've learned a lot over the last three years, and, and we grow a lot of different things. So, Rob, you have all these different sources you're getting your plants from and seeds from. Consumers have options now. They're used to options for craft beer, craft chocolate craft coffee are we headed in the direction of having craft plants (laughs) well i think that overall the trend is you know more diversity in our diets and 
certainly the chefs that we work with are really at the vanguard. They're at the forefront of this kind of experimentation and introducing new things to people. And I, you know, sometimes it it becomes apparent, um, you know, just by walking around a food court in Manhattan now, you know, if you look back maybe 15 years ago, you might have had a Mexican place and maybe a Thai place or something, you know. But now you'll have... Mexican and Thai and Vietnamese and you'll have Japanese and you'll have a certain region of China maybe and you'll have like a Peruvian place and and so people are becoming more accustomed with just eating more globally and discovering more ingredients and you know being interested in something fresh on the plate so chefs are really there to introduce new things to people and then gradually you'll see them in the supermarket as well Uh, we tend to grow things that chefs are going to understand but consumers may not know what to do with them when they're cooking um, you know, the, the great situation we're in is we can have a chef visit the farm. They can taste something they've never had before. But because their brain is, you know, designed to create menus and dishes, they can instantly say, oh, you know, I could pair this with this beet dish or I could do something here with a chicken dish that I've been working on or something like that. And so they're able to start to fit these ingredients into a, into a system and, and create a dish that's going to be exciting. But but yeah, that biodiversity in terms of our palates and in terms of our diets, you know, is really increasing. And I'm excited about that because it, you know, it's great for our business, but it also just means people are eating more vegetables, people are eating more exciting things. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's great. Mm. I'm here with Rob Lang, founder and CEO of Farm One. Rob, t- explain a little bit about the evolution of hydroponic technology to our listeners. A lot of, a lot of folks probably associate hydroponic growing with marijuana and other niche things. Has the technology evolved a lot? Is it still evolving? What's what's going on there? Sure. So hydroponics, uh, you know, to, to break it down, it really just means growing plants in a water-based nutrient solution instead of soil. And, you know, you can go back hundreds of years and look at people trying to do this kind of thing. Um, you know, if you go back a very long way, the uh, chinampas in the Aztec civilization were ways of piling up soil from a lake or a riverbed into mounds and then growing the plants on top of that. So using the nutrients that were in the lake bed um, to kind of make it look like plants are growing in water. That wasn't really a hydroponic system, but it showed some of the curiosity that people had to techniques like this. And as we went through, you know, more through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and, and people sort of discovering, you know, scientific scientific methods, you you found people like Robert Boyle who would put um, a mint plant in water and observe it growing and even compare that, for, for instance, between spring water versus distilled water. And they could notice that plants were growing more vibrantly in the spring water, which of course had some minerals in it as opposed to distilled water. And so, you know, people have experimented, but it really wasn't until the 20th century when uh, people like Hoagland, who came up with Hoagland's solution, really started to identify what are the key uh, minerals and nutrients that plants actually need to survive and how could we formulate a solution that might give them all of those things that they need uh, in water so that we could farm essentially without soil. And, you know, you then got to um, one of the first sort of larger scale hydroponic operations was actually at the end of the Second World War when the Allied troops on Ascension Island, uh, which is basically a barren sort of volcanic island, had to produce food for all these troops. And so uh, people started to use the emerging you know, methods of hydroponics there and using uh, volcanic rocks uh, as a, a substrate, a, a place for the plant seeds to sort of bed themselves in and produce roots. Um, and that was, you know, very, very successful. They were growing uh, cucumbers and tomatoes and leafy greens uh, for thousands of troops that were stationed there. And so, you know, th- then you saw people looking at that use of volcanic rock in, in, in Hawaii, for instance, and, and starting to do, as you said, starting to grow cannabis, um, and that's where, you know, during the 70s, 80s, 90s, I would say, yeah, most people's interaction with hydroponics was hearing about people growing uh, marijuana that way, you know. So there was a lot of innovation during those years. And, and you saw, started to see people um, starting to use lights and starting to grow indoors, obviously, because they were trying to be secretive. And so, you know, the history of hydroponics has been very much intertwined with the history of secret indoor growing of illegal drugs, you know. So, it's, uh, it's kind of funny how in the last 10 years or so, it started to become a bit more legit. You know, obviously, hydroponic farms uh, for, for culinary crops have existed for more than 10 years, but I would say that the public consciousness of them has really increased. And 
And what's happened is that, you know, you've had a lot of hobbyists growing cannabis uh, this way. And so you've had a lot of sort of folklore and a lot of people doing small systems. Um, but the sort of rigor and the uh, commercialization of this and doing this at a larger scale has only really started to take off, you know, uh, in the past few years. And what's also happened, of course, is LED lights have become much, much more affordable. Um, and so it's been possible to light these systems in a, in a, in a better way. So before we had LED lights, people would be using high pressure sodium lights, and lights like that that would produce lots of heat and use lots of power. So it wasn't really viable to grow a crop like lettuce because you would just spend way too much money on the power to make it effective. So it made sense for marijuana, but it didn't make sense uh, for something you were going to eat. And so LEDs are starting to change that picture. LEDs are still pretty expensive, um, but you know they're starting to be efficient enough and powerful enough that you can grow all kinds of crops under them. And, and companies have sprung up specifically to do that. Uh, you know, there's a company in the U.S. whose lights we use quite often called Fluent, uh, and they're based in in Texas. And they, um, you know, they produce a whole range of horticultural LED products now that anyone can buy. And so, um, so yeah, it's becoming easier and easier for people to do this stuff. And I think that anyone who's got a kind of engineering like uh, way of thinking, or people who are sort of curious about the science of growing indoors, you know, people can build a simple system very affordably or they can buy things off the shelf and so you know hydroponics is becoming uh, pretty mainstream and, and people are seeing it more and more so to use an analogy if you look at an industry like automotive when uh, there's a technology breakthrough typically you'll see it in in one or two very high-end cars you know mercedes or bmw or what have you maybe they got the first uh, airbag, or maybe they got the first automa- yeah. automatic braking system. And so you're kind of in a high-end niche. And so talk, take out your crystal ball. 10, 20 years from now, is, is this going to all merge into, hey, we got better scale, so we can deal with a food desert in a city where we can deliver economical leafy greens to folks and other things like that? What's, what's your crystal ball on the roadmap for scale and, you know, having this uh, trickle down to other segments of the marketplace? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, there's, I think there's actually two kinds of farms that are emerging. You know, there are the really, really big farms where you'll, you'll have a big company selling to a big grocery store and their farms are going to look more like factories. And, and I think that path is, is pretty sort of established and that's going to happen. But I think the more interesting aspect is what you're touching on is that as the price of this tech goes down, it becomes more affordable for people to try to do these things um, you know, in the basement of an apartment building in the Bronx and or, you know, in a community center in Queens or something like that. And, you know, the price of LEDs is going down all the time. Uh, you know, there are cheaper and cheaper ways to get those lights. The, the cost of a hydroponic system is going down a little bit, but it's that lighting cost that is most significant. And so what I hope to see or what I would love to see and what I think is possible is that in a city like uh, New York or Hong Kong or Tokyo, um, you know, people can start to use these underused spaces in the city to grow produce. And it's, it's never going to be enough to feed the whole city. It's never going to be replacing, you know, a source of rice and wheat and corn and all that kind of thing. But it's a way for people to get fresh food and to do that in a way that they're empowered as a community and involved in that food production. I think hydroponics and growing indoors now sort of returns that ability for the community to grow its own food. And, and so I really hope to see that cities like New York and um, big cities really encourage that urban agriculture and give people easy ways to do that uh, because we've got you know we've got loads of space in this city that that's sitting there it's in a basement or it's an extra room or it's a rooftop and you know there's things that we can do to to bring that food production back to people's lives and you know if we can do that successfully I think people become more connected to their food you know people who are involved in food production tend to eat better tend to be more knowledgeable about their diet. Um, and so my crystal ball is, is kind of a hopeful vision, but I think that we can, you know, get producing more food in the city and more fresh food. Uh, and I'd be really excited to see that. Mm. So as founder and CEO of Farm One, since you started it out, what, what have some of your biggest challenges been? And, you know, what are they on an ongoing basis? What keeps you awake at night? Oh, boy. Yeah, a lot of things. Uh, I think that, you know, from the beginning, it's, it's, 
as I said, this thing of it's, it's been very difficult to compare. Like, if are we doing well or are we doing not? You know, because we we're trying to do a really trying to solve a really hard problem. You know, and so uh, I think that at the beginning, some of that was inexperience, and so we took over a space in Tribeca, which in many ways is fantastic, but in other ways is quite difficult. It's an old building. You know, doing the HVAC system there is very difficult. Um, you know, we've had problems with that and leaks and just building building mm. stuff, you know. And and as someone who had previously worked in software where, you know, i got to say it's a lot easier, you know, um, I was not prepared for some of that and our team wasn't prepared either. And so we've, we've had struggles there, uh, but we've learned a lot. And I think my solution to some of that is really what we figured out was, ah, actually people from the hospitality industry have a lot of knowledge about this. So, so our operations director now, um, a guy named Justin, he, you know, his background is in managing restaurants because, you know, he had dealt with all the physical infrastructure, all the, you know, shifts and people turning up sick or not coming in and people, you know, doing all the things that people do in restaurants, but, um, you know, applying that to a farm. And that's been super useful to have someone dependable like that who's kind of seen it all. Um, and so those were, I guess, some of the initial challenges. And now I think it's, you know, some of the, the questions are around, okay, you know, as we touched on before, how, what's the best way to expand this business? How do we do that and maintain quality? What What's the deal structure? You know, how should we work with these investors? And, you know, we're, a, we're an unusual company. We're not a company that's trying to be a multi-billion dollar business. We're trying to be a company that's strong and profitable and has a really interesting product, but you know, we're not really a great candidate for a huge amount of VC money. And so we're trying to, you know, uh, build the company and, and fundraise for the company in in ways that are, you know, more uh, compatible with the investors that we want and the locations that we want and the kind of company that we want to be. And so, you know, some of that is, is a sort of, um, you know, mission and values kind of choice that we've made. Um, but you know, the challenge is then, okay, you know, we don't have millions of dollars to play with. So everything as a small business becomes a trade-off. Do we do this? Do we do that? Um, you know, and hopefully, hopefully we make the right decisions. Um, but I think that, yeah, the, the difficult thing about farming is, you know, well, farming is hard to start with anyone doing any kind of farming will tell you that. Uh, but also if you want to scale, you know, you have to build more, you have to invest in expensive technology, you have to um, you know, lease more space, all that kind of stuff. So there's no sort of quick way of scaling this business. Um, but I think the, the great thing that's come out of that is, you know, we have a team that's really, really passionate. I've never worked with such a group of people who's, you know, so driven by the idea and and also working with customers who just love what we're doing. You know, they depend on us and they get excited about the product and I think, you know, if that quality of product wasn't there and if the passion of the chefs wasn't there, we wouldn't do it. But um, but we're part of, you know, hospitality industry that, that loves to feed people great food. And so that kind of gets us through, you know, some of the more difficult times. Uh, but, yeah, i got to say, it's definitely the hardest thing I've ever done by far. And I'm really glad that I had some previous experience running another company because I think, you know, to come into this industry as a complete newbie uh, in terms of, you know, business and entrepreneurship would have been, uh, you know, almost impossible. Uh, but yeah, we're hanging in there. We're, we're doing well. So, uh, so I'm proud of the team. It sounds like you're excited to get out of bed every morning and go, uh, go work on the business. Oh, you gotta be. Cause like, <laughs> it's so hard work. You gotta be. And I think the team is the same and it's such a, you know, we've got such a good group of people who are, you know, they put in a lot of work, but they they believe in this mission as well and they love what we're doing and it's you know it, it's just this thing where you know when people come and visit your company you could show them around a room of engineers staring at a screen or you can show them the farm and it's the farm is like this you know vibrant beautiful thing that inspires people and and so working around that every day is is, is really really exciting i think mm-hmm. And it sounds like you've got a happy problem, but a problem nonetheless, which is you're going to have a lot of options in the future, like you touched on, expanding to other cities, franchising, spending more of your time developing the technology and the software. It's You've probably got more things to work on than you can get to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the, the great thing about building software at the same time is we can test out the software on the farm and, you know, we get an instant feedback loop. And so it, it's a great place to sort of incubate new ideas and all that. But 
but you know, with business, there's always it's about focus, and so we've we've got many many things we could be doing, but probably two or three things that we should be doing. Um, you know, my job and the team's job is to keep us focused on that, uh, but we feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Rob, before we go into wrap up, are there any other thoughts or advice you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, you know, I I would say that. You know, food is something to be involved in. And if you're listening to this podcast, you know, you, you should be involved in food. And I think the great thing about hydroponics and indoors, indoor growing is that, you know, actually anyone can do it. And so it's worth finding out a little bit more about it and, and experimenting with systems, um, you know, if you're interested. Um, and also, yeah, you can come and visit Farm One. So we have tours uh, most days of the week. We have classes teaching you how to do hydroponics. We do events as well. So there's lots of ways to interact with the farm if you visit uh, New York City. Yeah, so I assume if our listeners are going to be in your area, they just go to the One website and look at tour information. Is that the best way for them to access that? Exactly. You can book your tour online. takes a couple of seconds and... And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a one-hour tour and it's a glass of Prosecco. Or you taste a lot of different things. It's, a, it's really, really fun. A glass of Prosecco, too. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I want to thank my guest today, Rob Lang, founder and CEO of Farm One, a really neat business. Rob, thank you for being on the podcast and great luck in your future growth and expansion. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to C2C where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play. This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own.